This is a download from Force Migration Online. To find out more, please go to www.forcemigration.org. Issue area. By doing so, we lose more than we gain. 
but establishing that the issue area is irredeemably chaotic raises another simple question. Why do we find ourselves drawn into and then trapped within such nebulous issue areas in the first place? This is a question that obviously is relevant to ask in a wide range of contexts, far beyond environmental migration. That is a context where we engage with concepts or justifications that are perhaps well-meaning, but infused and infused with an agreeable sentiment, but that can't actually be proven true or false, and thus entail for the proponents of these concepts and justifications no obligations for specific action or responsibilities for specific failure as a consequence of them. The terms can be made to mean anything or nothing due to their ambiguity. These are what I call equivocal forms of justification. From the origins of the financial and euro crisis to nation building Afghanistan to the ambiguity of much climate change related policy making, these equivocal forms of justification can be found in all areas of life, politics, and research in the guise of equivocal research agendas. The problem is that we have no way of critiquing equivocal forms of justification. Our usual options fail to gain traction. To say something's not open to be falsified is to merely condemn on a technicality. To say a given position is demonstrably driven by politics says nothing about the integrity of the position in its own right, as it only addresses the intentions of the actor. Neither critique necessarily invalidates the claim in question. Equivocal justifications are, I'd argue, proliferating precisely because they are like Teflon to traditional forms of critique. They are thus of great expedience for those who have an interest in mitigating their own exposure to challenge and the risk of accruing real accountability in these issue areas. This talk will, through the case of environmental migration, aim to establish a framework for interrogating equivocal justifications. Environmental migration is a classic case of an equivocal issue area, one that is well-meaning but meaningless, politically charged but analytically nebulous, conversationally commonsensical but analytically or social scientifically nonsensical. It also has the advantage of being a relatively narrow and manageable case study, the better for illustrating a broader point. So in this, hope I hope to, uh, in this talk, I hope to do the following. To tidy up the manifest chaos surrounding the topic, to establish a threshold for meaningful discussion and make the case that environmental migration is irredeemably chaotic as a subject of substantive research, to explain why we find it hard to abandon such chaotic themes, and then in doing so to suggest what social scientists may do instead. But I'll begin by first outlining some background for those not familiar with the environmental migration issue area. This will allow us to set up the subsequent critique, which will then lead into a discussion of the, discussion of the proper role of social science in this and equivalent contexts. So some background. I first became aware of the environmental migration issue area in January 2009 when the RSC hosted a two-day workshop on the topic. Um, but what became immediately clear from this was that while it's a highly emotive issue area with a lot of impetus, it was also attended by a raft of conceptual and methodological problems and thus inevitably it remained empirically hazy. Given all this, it's useful to start by reflecting on the broader historical context in which such concern and the concern of this topic emerged and gained currency. The history has been well rehearsed. It finds its origins in the 1970s from Neil Malthusian, such as Lester Brown, talking of environmental stress leading to refugees. By the 1990s, concern of this causal relationship had taken on renewed vigor. This is because I think of two interlinked trends. First, the emergence of environmentalism. Migration, held implicitly to be a bad or challenging thing, was used to put a human face on an otherwise abstract concern about environmental change and degradation. Care about environmental problems, they affect you because they'll lead to floods of refugees. Second, the post-Cold War shift of security concerns from solely on state actors to non-state actors and transnational challenges. One can argue, I think without much risk of sounding overly cynical, that those with an interest in investment in security research and policy began the 1990s looking for new things to be worried about after the end of the Cold War. Threats increasingly began to be framed not as alternative ideologies in their state and martial embodiments alone, but as challenges, changes and challenges of a more apolitical nature, human processes like migration. 
and non-human phenomena like environmental change. Yet until four years ago, a concern of the relationship between environmental change and human migration remained a rather niche concern. But since 2007, there's been a proliferation of research on the theme. Indeed, it's gone from a concern among environmentalists and environmental security analysts to a key theme of technocratic engagement in both government and institutional contexts. So what's the trigger for this? Well, I'd argue that it was the mainstreaming of climate change as an issue of technocratic rather than just green and kind of granola concern and significance, which came in, as it were, from the cold in autumn 2006 with uh, the publication of the Stone Report and the release of Al Gore's film Inconvenient Truth. You go on Google Trends, if that's the news volume in a normalized graph of all the news volume generated on climate change uh, in the last few years. And it really takes off around the time this film came out and this report was, but was published. So there's actually a lag of about a year between the film and, and the report and the pickup in media interest, a lag of about a year between that happening and the current flood of publications and research projects on environmental migration. This is enough time for funding to be allocated, publicized, and awarded for research, and for that research to be published. It is in the context of climate change, then, that an explicit focus with the relationship between environmental change and human migration emerged as a prominent and resonant, resonant issue area. Yet one feature of the concern of this theme is that its political currency has far outstripped its analytical integrity as a field. Indeed, a lot is being said on the topic without the literature really saying anything. There was a huge interest in sorting the chaos, which is exactly, I think, why the seminar series has been convened. It was also why I became interested in this topic. It is, as I presented something of a riddle. Thus, I set out with a master's thesis to do some due diligence by asking, well, what can we meaningfully say about environmental migration? My argument, will be outlined, uh, my argument for this will be outlined uh, in this talk. Suffice to say at this stage that my view is that we can say nothing about it. It's either meaningful or policy operable. However, in answering this question, a second and third question emerged as a consequence. Uh, and these have preoccupied me since I finished the master's. The second question was, how does one account for the intrinsic dissonance in the literature and in the seminar room, where researchers largely acknowledge the nebulous nature of the environmental migration nexus, but then still find it necessary to talk of environmental migrants regardless? The third question was, if I'm right in saying that the environmental migration nexus is in fact irredeemably nebulous, what can researchers, not to mention policymakers, focus on instead? What would be a better use of their time and resources, given that environmental change remains real, as does migration? Given the research funding at stake, I think this is literally a million dollar question. Having written the master's thesis and noticed the distinct pattern of repost it caused, I realize that these three questions need to be tackled together if any critique's gonna have traction. Given the slipperiness of this issue area, only a coordinated pincer movement of the three, of successfully tackling all three questions would be effective. So having laid out this background, these three questions will structure the rest of this talk. Hopefully by the end, we will have indicated that when facing issue areas like environmental migration, Social scientists who work in applied thematic silos like migration studies have an important role to play, but it's not first a substantive one. It is first to reflect on the intrinsic epistemological potential of such research agendas and equivocal issue areas, justifications, and other contexts to ever be substantiated. This is the role that is not only increasingly necessary, but one I'd argue that social scientists are uniquely well suited to play. So gaining critical distance. In order to gain critical distance, I'm going to begin with an anecdote that I think nicely captures the principal misunderstanding that structured almost all debate on environmental migration. In June 2011, I attended the Nansen Conference, actually where I saw Nina there too, uh, on climate change and displacement in the 21st century. That was in Oslo. Uh, one of the opening speakers began his presentation by stating that climate change affects migration, and that this is no longer up for debate, he said. We no longer have room for the skeptical view who said that climate change doesn't affect migration. The focus, he said, should be on how to help climate displacees. We need to roll up our sleeves and do something. 
and thus and we need to begin by understanding the nature of the relationship between climate change and displacement. Now this action-centric approach explains why the main questions have tended to be either of a normative sort, how can we help environmental migrants, or an ontological sort, who are environmental migrants. But I'd like to argue that the keynote speaker's statement, although a quite common one, is actually a red herring, and that the concern of normative and ontological questions is actually superfluous. But it's not that this statement is wrong, it's just that it misses the point. The fundamental critical point is not that there's no relationship between environmental climate change and migration or displacement. The fundamental critical point is that, of course, there's a relationship, but that to state this is a banal truism, in a complex system, there's obviously a relationship at some level between everything and everything else. The problem is that depending on how one defines environment and defines migration, and depending on how far removed and mediated one is allowed to be from an environmental driver in question, one could plausibly argue there to be anything from zero environmental migrants to seven billion of them, or us as it would then be. How one defines environment as distinct from society and how we distinguish a migrant from a non-migrant are both highly problematic endeavors as critical political ecologists and migration scholars have long noted. We need to remember that if we can say virtually anything with a concept, it is not the same thing as saying something specific and indeed is tantamount to saying nothing. But the truism I've already outlined, that of course there is a relationship between environment and migration, disguises that what is being missed entirely is the question we should be asking at the outset. What can we say about the relationship between something called environment and something called migration? We should, in other words, begin with an epistemological question. Thus, the prevailing assumption that the problem and the solution are to be found in definitions and data entirely misses the point. What we first need to look at is an a priori assumption that regardless of context or scope, we can talk meaningfully about the relationship between environment and migration, that we can say something worthwhile about causal relationships between environmental independent variables and societal outcomes of any sort. The second fundamental misunderstanding, closely allied with the first, is the widespread preoccupation with definitions and labels and the variability of scope and applicability these entail. This is because no matter if you use the label environmental refugee or environmental migrant or climate displacee or environmental displacement or environmental mobility or even environmental movement, which I heard at one conference this summer, they all hold implicit the same three interlinked assumptions. First, that we can meaningfully define what we mean by environment and migration. Second, that we can determine the relationship between whatever we conclude is environment and migration. And third, that we can then distinguish the sort of migrant from any other sort of migrant. When we see this, debates about terminology appear as but the narcissism of small differences. All these terms and categories share more than they differ, and what they share are fundamental deficiencies as frameworks for empirical work. Thus, I'm using the term environmental migration in this talk as a shorthand term for the whole issue area. It's also worth noting here a type of terminology that's been described as, that's best described as hedge. Take the term environmentally induced displacement. This is an attempt to be more sensitive and nuanced by offering caveats and qualifications to existing but deficient definitions and terms like environmental displacement. But the cost of making a term less clear cut is that it is eviscerated of any real explanatory power and therefore defeats the point of doing research in the first place. We need to be very conscious of lapsing into this sort of language which, while meaning, while well-meaning, remains ultimately meaningless. Again, if a term can be stretched to mean anything, it fails to mean something specific and therefore has as much relevance as saying nothing. Such vague, vague catch-all terms are endemic in the thematically siloed fields like migration studies, whereas like continuum, for instance, abound. Such terms, continuum or environmentally induced displacement, are really just euphemisms for nothing useful has been empirically ascertained. They are not helpful as such. They are only helpful when, given their prevalence, they indicate that the most we can say about something is that it defies more specific articulation. 
But this is not a substantive contribution to understanding, it's a critical one. We're back to the point of highlighting the second misunderstanding. When I use the term environmental migration here, I'm using it to refer to the whole cluster of terms that make up this issue area. And then there's a third misunderstanding that also emerges from isolating the proper question and demonstrating the superficiality of debates about terminology. It is that although robust on their own terms, although robust on their own terms, the usual types of critique aimed at the environmental migration nexus are themselves only superficial, as they fail to engage with and challenge the constant underlying assumptions of the issue area, which I've just outlined. Traditional critiques have come in three forms. First, they critique particular terms and definitions, environmental refugee, environmental migrant, climate migrant, and so on. They critique on saying, uh, because they are either, they're saying the terms are either legally or methodologically problematic, or because they are conceptually procrustean, they can really apply to anything. And so they're quite arbitrary. They critique, and the second type of critique is that there's been critiques of particular substantive claims made. Uh, Norman Meyer is well known for coming up with lots of enumerations of environmental migrants. And uh, this has been open to a lot of uh, uh, challenge on methodological grounds. But there's a third type of critique as well that's been made, which exposes the politics driving uh, epistemic interest with the issue area. And I mean, Alex has got a brilliant paper on this, uh, Politics of Issue Linkage, uh, which uh, really looks at the politics driving interest in these sort of issue areas. Now, these three forms of critique do one of two things. They either critique based on the technicality, i.e. a given concept like environmental migration is not valid as it does not meet a particular standard of science, i.e. it's not falsifiable or possible of being subjected to counterfactuals. Or, they critique by tacitly imputing motivations and agendas. The argument goes that politics, rather than analytical credibility, is driving the concern with an issue area. Now, however accurate these critiques may be, and I really think they are, they're very good critiques, they simply fail to get at the validity of the underlying assumptions involved in this sort of issue area. A concept or statement may not be falsifiable, falsifiable, and it may indeed be politically constructed and driven. But that does not necessarily negate the assumption that we can meaningfully talk of the relationship between environment and migration. It does not necessarily render the nexus intrinsically and irredeemably nebulous, meaningless and thus pointless. Noting an issue area is equivocal is an observation, but it's not sufficient for a judgment. Equivocal issue areas are common in social scientific research, particularly when it is silent thematically. We can all think it feels like this. The environmental migration nexus is just one. The transnationalism theme is another. Nothing substantive or definitive is ever concluded, and the conclusions are often caveated by the phrase, more research is needed. This phrase draws attention away from what is manifestly lacking in current research by emphasizing what is needed in future research, but crucially, it reflects little on how to progress from one to the other. So the question is, given the failure of traditional critiques to gain purchase on them, how does one assess the, intrinsic, uh, the integrity of the critical issue areas? We clearly need a new approach that gets beyond the three normal critiques. So in summary, gaining a critical distance is important because it allows us to tidy up the discussion and stops us being trapped in the academic equivalent of trying to escape an MC Escher sketch. Obviously, the waterfall, you end up the base and you come back to the top again. Focusing on normative and ontological questions is hopeless, for we have not pinned down exactly what we can epistemologically even say about these issues. Engaging in neology, coming up with new terms, is the equivalent of laundering a problem. They may look refreshed each time, but it remains just as nebulous. And mobilizing these critiques anyway does little to address the validity of the underlying assumptions that drive interest in this issue area. But having closed off these, blind, these common blind alleys, we seem no closer to determining what can actually be said about environmental migration. What is more, we're operating in a post, I guess we call it our post-postmodern era, when we know there are no objective Archimedean points from which to mount a critique as all knowledge is itself constructed. How then to establish a threshold for saying something specific rather than just anything? To establish such a threshold, I will now argue that we need to reflect on the context in which we have a use for any social scientific engagement, 
an environmental migration. I'm parched. So what is our, so what is our purpose? In what context is environmental migration a theme worthy of substantive research? Environmental migration is, I'd argue, of interest because it's seen, rightly or wrongly, as a problem, or at least an aberration. Some approach it as a humanitarian problem, i.e. environmental change impacts on livelihoods. Some see it as a security problem, a new form of migration that will overwhelm border security and lead to the cluster of problems and tensions that are often, again, rightly or wrongly, usually wrongly, associated with migration generally. What is, um, that is identified as a problem, or conundrum, suggests it's one we want to solve, or at least mitigate. In other words, it's something we want to understand in order to take action. But not just any action. It must be action via our collective mechanisms for acting on problems that transcend the scope of individual initiative. In other words, states and international institutions. The states and international institutions have two roles in this context. First, if they are to effectively and efficiently respond to the socioeconomic impact of environmental migration, they would require predictive models that determine the provenance and numbers of environmental migrants. Second, if states and institutions are to not only offer protection to these environmental migrants, but also ensure equitable burden sharing among themselves, they'll need to construct legal and normative frameworks that clearly distinguish environmental migrants from any other sort of migrant. That much is obvious, but we need to remember that to be legitimate and worthwhile, such institutional action would also have to have intended, as opposed to just arbitrary, outcomes. The only way to do that is to ensure that predictive models and legal and normative frameworks are evidence-based based on the facts of the scope and configuration of the problem at hand, in this case, the relationship to an environmental migration, so as to ensure various factors are weighted correctly and so that there is a clear order of priority in terms of action. But establishing an evidence base requires us to establish a stable conceptual framework. This means we must be able to identify essential but also generalizable truths about the dynamic between environment and migration. This is because in the absence of an Archimedean point, being able to determine and generalize provides a threshold for meaningful discussion. For it is not meaning in a vacuum that we seek, but meaning with a purpose, i.e. being policy operable. And we need to remember that while policy may be driven by politics, and of course it's often driven by politics, it's legitimated by a claim to be mutually constructed, rationally assessed, and scientifically founded. If our research is to, be, to, is to succeed, we therefore need to distinguish between saying something specific rather than anything about the influence, between, uh, influence of environment or migration. If our understanding does not function on both these axes simultaneously, determining the relationship and generalizing about it, thereby leaving definitions equivocal, then it cannot be a guide to action that will have intended outcomes, which is the whole point. Thus, for starters, it would be a waste, um, for starters, it would be a waste of, of finite institutional resources and capacity. But potentially more pernicious is that when a woolly category is granted political currency without the check of specificity, it is then open to expedient use and abuse uh, by actors with their own agendas. Given both migration and environmental change are such emotive themes these days, the environmental migration issue area is particularly open to this sort of abuse. So with all this in mind, we'll now look at the pattern of candidate case Candidate environmental migration case context evident across the literature. This is actually drawn originally from Hugo's paper, uh, some of you may have known, um, and uh, there's lots of permutations on this, but this is a general, these kind of cover the general pattern of the way the, the discussions develop. Some are easily dismissed. Man made projects such as the Three Gorges Dam have in the past sometimes been cited uh, as a source of environmental migration. However, clearly the prime movie here is political and thus privileging the environmental gives us nothing in terms of predictive uh, potential. Natural disasters are, are, are a more common but still problematic case because the disastrousness of any environmental hazard is conditioned by social, political, economic context and structures. As Mohammed Hanza once put so well, actually, the 
the first presentation I went to, he stopped and he said, earthquakes don't kill people. Buildings fall on people, kill people. It's dependent on corruption and infrastructure and, and uh, governments and so on. Um, there is no linear relationship, in other words, between an environmental independent variable and a social outcome. The focus on the environmental driver is thus to miss the real issue which we need to act on, which is a contingency of impact, corruption and so on. Uh, at any rate, and at any rate, it frustrates predictive modeling. Uh, then we turn to a general environmental degradation, and the same problems of, condition, uh, of conditional impact apply. That being said, the notion might in principle be general enough to be hypothetically useful for establishing a generalizable typology. Without being both determinative and generalizable, we can can't establish any basis for predictive models and legal and normative frameworks. With sea level rise, much the same problems exist about distinguishing environmental migrants from any other sort of migrant. But that aside, even in the worst case projections, such as hundreds of millions of people displaced by sea level rise, these are aggregate numbers spread over half a century worldwide. These numbers are also less impactful when put in the proper context of population growth over the same period and continuing rural urban migration. All in all, we're not able to determine causality and distinguish between those with an environmental guide and those without. Finally, the specific notorious case of sinking islands is often cited as a clinching case for a clear causal relationship between environmental change and migration. But again, given the timescales and global dispersal involved, it actually becomes far less clear cut. Furthermore, there are, as Roger Zetter here at RSC has argued, there are plenty of existing frameworks that can cover such cases in a rather ad hoc manner, like French special degree powers and so on. At any rate, it seems odd to balance the validity of the entire environmental migration issue area on the demographic pinhead of so-called sinking islands. The goal, we must remember, is to find generalizable characteristics across a range of specifics, not to generalize form A specific. In fact, I'd argue that sinking sovereignties deserve to be dismissed from the discussion entirely, for the numbers involved are inconsequential, even if they are determinable. In becoming preoccupied with this narrow case, I think we lose more than we gain. Taking these cases as a whole, there are clearly several overlapping reasons why the goal of determining uh, general policy operable truths about the nature of the relationship between environmental migration is a Sisyphean task, like a hopeless task. First, face with stress, people do not necessarily migrate in the first place. Second, if they do migrate, it's virtually impossible to isolate an environmental driver in a manner that would inform some general policy operable typology. Indeed, the causes of migration are always complex and can't be isolated as the original conditions are themselves conditioned, and it is all subject to feedback. That's the nature of a complex system. We also need to be aware that the very concern of environmental migration from, say, sea level rise is largely premised on a set of assumptions about receiving contexts that are either wrong or misleading. Erroneous zero-sum assumptions about regional carrying capacity, which is a concept that doesn't even apply in the human context anyway, as Bozrup showed in the 60s. Uh, uh, also concerns that immigration um, is a source of problems in urban areas rather than the real problems being contingencies like corruption and incompetent governance. Look at Shenzhen, 1993 it was a fishing village. Now it's bigger than London. And there's not, it's not, migration, immigration has not been a problem. It's been successful because they've had better government than some other cities. Um, then, and also, uh, uh, um, yeah, and also assumptions that cities are static, not dynamic. But indeed, I'd argue that the ubiquity of the phrase multi-causality, which is obviously prevalent in migration studies, is itself not helpful, as it still assumes that societal phenomena have causal blueprints. But I'd argue that's just the wrong analogy. For what we're looking at is complexity, and this is better understood for the analogy of a recipe, not a blueprint. For example, many things go into baking a cake, but once they're in, you can't reverse engineer the cake to determine what its component parts and quantities are. Um, faced with complexity, identifying causes is simply beyond our epistemological capacity. We need to bear in mind that anything we say must be situated above the lower limits of what we must say to talk sense in an applied context, but also below the upper limits of what we can epistemologically say at all. 
Unfortunately, in this thematic context, <clears throat> the most we can say about the relationship between environment and migration is less than we need to say to be relevant. But again, in denying the validity of environmental migration as a policy operable issue area or category, this is, the, uh, this is um, uh, which is the context of meaningful discussion. This is not to deny or confirm that there is a relationship between environmental migration. It is simply to say that it's not a relationship that is interrogable in a manner that will provide a stable conceptual basis on which to construct policy that will have intended outcomes. So what we've seen is that if we attempt to resolve the conundrum of environmental migration through solving it by zooming in, gathering more data, adopting more rigorous methodology, expanding or narrowing definitions, revising terminology, we get no closer to any truth that would be generalizable and therefore fit for purpose. In the words of, a, in the words of AJP Taylor, who was referring to a trend in academic history, he was a historian, uh, a trend in academic history towards the use of solid documentary evidence harnessed to blatantly select the topics that a priori excluded a full review of all relevant factors, he said arguments can be 90% true, but they're still 100% useless. We should therefore consider the alternative, trying to resolve the conundrum, not by solving it, but by dissolving it, extracting ourselves from the issue area by explaining first why we want to fall into it, and second, what we as social scientists can do instead. Actually, mark up there. There we go. So first, I would, I would like to point out that none of the critiques I've outlined before about case studies are original or unfamiliar, except perhaps the manner in which I've organized them. But this is what is so fascinating. The literature and much discussion at conferences is marked by what I term an intrinsic dissonance. That is, an article or an argument begins by acknowledging that environmental migration is a nebulous nexus, and then goes on to talk of environmental migrants regardless. This is a phenomenon endemic across the literature. An opening acknowledgement, the causes of migration are always complex, closely followed by some comment on the need for further research to understand the nature of environmental migration. Why does this occur? One common answer is that interest and research into these issue areas is politically driven. And often this is true, certainly in terms of the funding for these issue areas. But this is not a sufficient answer, and in some cases it's not an answer at all. There are plenty of people working on this whose work is not driven or even structured by any sort of politics. Indeed, even where it is true, to cite the politics driving an issue area can be interpreted as just antagonistic, as in some way it's close to impugning intentions. What is much more important is, is to explain why this issue area maintains such a grip on our imagination, even when most scholars acknowledge the conceptual and methodological problems that attend it and the ambiguity of empirical claims. To explain its grip, I'd like to make two arguments. The first is an explanation of why certain discursive spaces have such a grip on our thinking. When a given term, environmental migrant, climate migrant, is shown to be intrinsically woolly, it has inevitably, inevitably been replaced by another term. Environmental refugee become environmental migrant, environmental migrant, climate migrant, and after that it gets uh, even more diverse. This, in effect, this, this process, in effect, launders our underlying frameworks and assumptions, putting criticism off the scent, however briefly. But eventually it becomes clear that each new category still fails to say anything useful and thus becomes subject to a similar set of critiques itself. The reason for this appears to be that once a term is critiqued, we are left with a glaring conceptual vacuum that is required to be filled by some largely equivalent concept. But a vacuum in what, exactly? I'd argue that we need to remember that we don't focus on these concepts and issue areas in isolation but in the context of a mutually constitutive constellation of other ideational constructs, which together make up our worldview. Thus, concepts like migration, environment, nation state, globalization, climate change, development, poverty, 
social cohesion, governance. None of these have a definitive objective essence or definition, but are rather arranged in a manner that makes them relationally meaningful. Uh, thus, when a concept like environmental migration is shown to be nebulous, we're left with a sudden lacuna in our discursive framework, one we feel we need to fill with some molten equivalent. This argument has support in the work of Jean Baudrillard, who, drawing on Saussure's work on the relationality of meaning and signification, presented a picture of society in which all understanding is suspended horizontally in mutually reifying webs of meaning, as opposed to vertically reflecting reality itself. Also, as you know, there's actually origins far further back, like uh, J.G. Haman uh, in the 18th century was talking about this. Thus, when where we strive for complete understanding where this is not possible, we become enmeshed in these relationally constructed simulations of reality in order to arrive at some understanding that gives the impression of consistency. Baudrillard turned this hyperreality, and I think it's a bit of a jargon, but that is, he meant the simulation of something that never really existed. It does not reflect the real world in a definitive policy operable manner, but it does produce an abstract narrative which is relationally meaningful to us, and so is intellectually satisfying. This perhaps explains why people accept the validity of the critique of a concept while still feeling they need to engage with the discursive space it once occupied. In other words, we can't think away environmental migration uh, at the issue area without also thinking away the ideational constellations in which it is embedded. And we can't do that because, we can't even do this because these constellations constitute our worldview. To, to borrow um, Otto Neurath's analogy, to do so would be like trying to repair the hull of a boat while standing in it at sea. We, you know, knowledge structures our ability to actually critique knowledge. What needs to be remembered is that in the context of policies claims to be evidence-based, it is necessary, but not sufficient, to have a framework that is internally consistent. It must be both consistent and a complete representation of reality itself in a positivistic framework. We could term this the fourth wall, if you want, of substantive social science, and it must be broken for our analysis to be meaningful. Ideational constructs may make sense to us intellectually, but we must confuse, uh, confuse them with empirically anchored representations of reality, which can inform the construction of policy. My argument is that, as a matter of due diligence, we must begin by assessing our epistemological capacity to break the fourth wall and describe complex phenomena. For if we don't do this, and we'll simply continue to have discussions that seem plausible in the abstract, but can't be reconciled and mapped onto the real world. I should just say, the idea of the fourth wall in drama is where you have the stage with three walls, and the fourth wall is the audience. And the whole notion of, of suspending disbelief is the idea of not breaking the fourth wall, unless it's in some sort of uh, you know, uh, fairly modern, postmodern drama like hair or something. But the, um, but the idea is in social science, you want to have a, a narrative that's consistent on the stage of debate. We're not all speaking nonsensically with each other, but it's also got to break the fourth wall of reality. That's the nature of social science to understand what is actually out there. So we need to do both consistency and completeness, which reflects like Godel's idea as well of like, a, you know, if you're going to have a, a model of something, it's got to be consistent and complete in order to be valid. And he actually showed in the theorem it's not possible to have both. So absolute models don't work anyway. anyway um, so the second argument I'd make explains why we find it hard to give up not just on a discursive space a term occupied, but a specific term itself. As I've noted, literature is marked by this intrinsic dissonance, right? It's first acknowledged the absence of a clear definition of causality of, say, environmental migration, but then incongruously go on to talk of environmental migrants regardless. I'd argue that this is due to confusion of the conditions of sense in ordinary and analytic language and contexts. The phrase environmental migration is not nonsense in the, in the traditional sense, as the phrase the man of, of, the on, is clearly nonsense as we use it. But we need to recognize that having sense in ordinary language doesn't ensure this, the same in analytical context. The 20th century philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein 
uh, who I recently discovered lives on the same street as me in Swansea. Well, he did, obviously, when he was alive. Uh, not anymore. Um, the, uh, he once noted that philosophers and scientists often, lament, often lamented the ambiguity of language, and they had often called for revisions to make it more precise. He had himself been among them, somewhat subversively, during the early years of the logical positivist movement in the 20s and 30s. But in his later work, Wittgenstein argued, uh, Wittgenstein argued that the, such concerns were based on a misconception of how language actually works. He famously illustrated his point with the word game. We all know what it means. We use it regularly. Yet if challenged to give a definition of a game, we would find it impossible to do so in a manner that it would exclude all non-games, but include all forms of games, competitive, non-competitive, games we play alone, games we play with other people. The problem, Wittgenstein argued, is that because a term is not prima facie nonsense to us in ordinary use, we then assume it must be possible to find its unequivocal definition, and that all that remains is for us to unearth this definition. But unlike a policy context, which founds its legitimacy on claims to be rational, scientific, and evidence-based, ordinary language doesn't require such definitions to function. Thus, I would argue that we continue to believe it possible to find a solution to the environmental migration conundrum, despite the prevalence of arguments that show the issue's intrinsically woolly nature, because it's not prima facie nonsense to us in ordinary language. We are engaged in Wittgenstein's terms in a search for explanations where none can be given. Language is something that exists in use, but this sort of positivistic approach to social science assumes it can also describe a map of reality. But it doesn't, and it can't, and attempts to do so will always be severe. So through these two arguments, how we focus on horizontal consistency of our framework at the expense of focusing on vertical completeness, and how we confuse the conditions of sense of ordinary and analytic language. Through these two arguments, I've tried to account for why we are wont to fall into equivocal issue areas. This also accounts for why they maintain such a grip in our imagination, despite widespread acknowledgement that they are beset by conceptual and methodological problems. So that was the first step in dissolving the concern of environmental migration. The second step involves explaining what social scientists can do instead. This question often comes up framed as a rebuttal to the critiques I've outlined. I've heard it lots of times. People say, well, this may all be true. They don't really have substantive objections so far, but they, they'll say, well, what do you suggest we do instead? And at my point, that's where research should begin. That's a valid question. It's not a rhetorical question. I think we can offer an answer to it, though, too. And I, but I think we first need to get some perspective in order to do so. Um, it's important to remember that examining environmental migration is not done for its own sake. Understanding migration or climate change was not even the point of it. The purpose is to deal with problems, perceived or real, pertaining to what we can loosely term human and or national security, depending on your interests. It doesn't matter how we define these latter terms. The point is that, EM, uh, that environmental migration is merely a silo facilitating thematic focus that was never an end in itself, and thus to collapse it does not present the conundrum it might at first appear to. For again, to collapse it is not to say the world is free of problems. It's not to deny migration is happening or environmental change is happening. It is simply to say that we should not waste time focusing on epistemologically intractable sub-themes if we're trying to come to actionable grips with an imperfect world. However, the same critiques must also apply, obviously, to any other similarly siloed research agenda. In fact, it's worth noting that the broader applicability of this critique is commonly misunderstood to be a defense of the status quo. Quite regularly, I've heard the statement made, well, doesn't this critique, which shows this concept to be nebulous, equally apply to most other concepts we use? But my response to that, well, that, my response is that's not a defense. That's rather seeking safety in numbers. Such nebulous con con uh, concepts may well be common, but, ubi ubiquity, but ubiquity is not a synonym for legitimacy. So if we can't conduct meaningful work on such siloed issue areas, the question is clear. What can we do instead that will still align with an ethically-minded and ameliorist view of the world? 
I would argue the answer is revealed once we situate social science. And to do this, we're required to remember two things. First, we are talking exclusively here about what social scientists can do instead. I say this only because these sorts of issue areas are notorious for the confusing of policy and research motifs and normative and analytic frameworks. Given that effective normative work requires some sort of evidence base to have intended outcomes, I think it's safe to assume getting our analytical house in order is a necessary starting point for any sort of engagement, particularly that for social scientists. Second, positivistic social science doesn't occur in a vacuum. On any given issue area, particularly in fields like migration studies, which is of course inherently structured by methodological nationalism anyway, to the concerns of the state, there are also decision makers and practitioners who have a stake and interest. We're looking at issues that are largely rarefied and engaged with by state and institutional actors. These actors are, of course, political animals, and political expedience often trumps or at the very least structures the truth. Indeed, on issues like environmental migration, where there is epistemologically no discernible truth, all justifications on, on the issue will have to be equivocal in nature, perhaps couched in well-meaning language, but nevertheless never leading to a specific obligation or responsibility but while potentially triggering unintended outcomes. What is needed in these cases is social science offering a critical corrective, not attempting substantive understanding of complex issue areas like environmental migration, for that is impossible by definition. But instead, we should be exposing the critical nature of substantive research on such issue areas, and thus the justifications for action such research legitimates. But crucial to this approach to social science, I think, is the avoidance of three ideals. First, the idea that we can have perfect knowledge, for we know there are no Archimedean truths. We've demonstrated this with, uh, with regard to environmental migration. Second, though, the widespread if implicit assumption that we can achieve perfect government. For as Isaiah Berlin so persuasively argued, the pursuit of utopias is inherently a very pernicious activity, and Karl Popper did the same thing in the open society. In other words, it cannot be the role of social science to recommend substantive, absolute improvements to a way of conducting policy and government. All we can do is point out where justifications for action are equivocal, and thus do not do what they say on the box. The point is that on causal themes, there is little basis for recommending substantively better policy. However, we can perhaps ensure that policy is incrementally less erroneous and less given to replicate the same mistaken assumptions. But just as the sun will always rise, equivocal justifications, uh, justified decisions will continue to be made. In light of this reality, a discipline focusing on unpacking equivocal justifications wherever they appear would be a healthy and structurally necessary corrective on the worst excesses, uh, excesses of our system. Third, and perhaps most importantly, the approach I'm suggesting only makes sense when we realize the folly of the counterclaim. If everyone adopted this critical view, nothing would get done. That's the third idea, the idea that you could ever convince everyone of it. My point is, and that's often brought up, so people say, well, if everyone, this, this has always been the big comeback to post-structural thinking. Well, if we all thought this, nothing would get done. It's just nihilistic. But we've got to, that's an ideal in itself, assuming you'd convince everyone. No one agrees. If everyone agreed on everything, we wouldn't have any problems in the world. We wouldn't need research. So, you know, we need, need to bear that in mind. For a starting, the starting point for this approach is that it'll only ever be a minority one, because the world is run on simplifications, for complexity cannot by definition be understood in a policy-operable manner. Indeed, most problems and conflicts in the world occur at root because of assumptions or aspirations for simplicity where it does not or cannot exist. You get conflict where you have two sides who both think they have the answer to the way society should be run, and they conflict, and that kills people. Um, but surely what is therefore needed at a structural level is not more social science offering new variations on old tendencies to pursue ideals and reduce complexities and simplifications, but rather social science offering critical correctives to a system that is, that is itself required to simplify in order to act. In other words, social science should not be aiming to prescribe action. 
It should be aiming to demonstrate where justifications for actions, however well-meaning, are nevertheless equivocal and meaningless, with the consequence that the actions based on them will not have intended outcomes. Immanuel Kant perhaps said it best, from the crooked timber of humanity, no straight thing was ever made. Social science should be attempting not to understand complexity, but to simply and constantly demonstrate that things are complex, or rather to demonstrate where we have assumed an act on simplistic interpretations that arbitrarily rarefy and privilege particular variables. This is achieved not through conducting a study as if in a vacuum, but rather by, condu by conducting due diligence on any justification by a decision maker or practitioner, be it for an action or a research agenda, to see if they make the claims that are equivocal. Home stretch. Um, perhaps this role might at first appear to be a step down from what we like to claim we can say and do. But ultimately, it's more effective than what we are doing by implicitly pursuing ideals ourselves. Ought does not imply can, for we can have no moral obligation to do what we cannot do, and we cannot do something that will have intended outcomes if we can't map our conceptual frameworks onto a complex reality. I'd argue that within social science itself, ensuring this reflexivity is extremely important, as there appears to be, loosely speaking, a dichotomy in much research. On the one hand, uh, work that is policy relevant in the more kind of analytic school, which uh, engages little with the philosophical foundational paradoxes that bedevil any attempt at substantive positivistic research. On the other hand, work that is more exclusively academic, but rather opaque in meaning and, and obscure in its broader relevance. The approach I'm suggesting is an alternative where social scientists can engage with policymaking and be relevant, but without being forced to check a more cautious philosophical approach at the door. But to do this, we need to be aware of our limits and hence the need for reflexivity. But I just said that we can be relevant. Well, what, do I mean by rele uh, what I mean by relevance becomes more obvious when we acknowledge the methodological nationalism inherent in much substantive social science. I'd argue, this is my view, that a key, in, a key problem in liberal democracy, a corroding problem within liberal democracy, is the equivocal form of justification, for it shields those in positions of power from the risk of accountability that comes with specificity of obligation and responsibility. In the public sphere, the fourth estate, the media, is not well equipped to speak truth to power in these cases, as equivocal statements are by definition not ones that can be audited for truth or falsehood. Bearing in mind the absence of an Archimedean vantage point, and given that much social science is fundamentally orientated to making things legible in a manner that is only relevant in the context of the state, I would argue that the role of social scientists must be to expose the equivocal nature of justifications where necessary. As such, social science has a potential role as a form of fifth estate in a liberal democracy. This means we can make a real difference, but without handicapping ourselves by siloing research thematically. Fields that do so, like migration or development studies, require us to reify and privilege otherwise arbitrary and contingent variables in our analyses. The result is a Sisyphean pursuit. We'd be better able to balance relevance and academic integrity if we were more explicitly situating ourselves as a fifth estate. The policy relevance, I should say here, is more of one, not about someone saying, research X for me, but in going to the people who have the hands on the purse at the policy level, at the institutional level, to say, how, what themes should you even prioritize for research? So it's about addressing policy relevance at the level of prioritizing research, not engaging with the themes they give you. That's the relevance at the, at the structural level in society. So, uh, conclusion. Thank God. So in conclusion, where does all this leave us with regard to the theme of this seminar series? Issue areas like environmental migration act as thematic black holes. They draw in scarce research resources, but not generalizable, but, not, uh, but no generalizable, as opposed to arbitrary or vague, conclusions ever come back out. They also exert, like a black hole, a strong distorting influence on the trajectory of research more broadly around it, 
trap many people in, to use James Fairhead's phrase, a language of response to them, even if they are not engaged in substantive work on a theme like environmental migration themselves. By setting a threshold for relevant, policy-operable discussion, we can see it is irredeemably nebulous, as it, it is an irredeemably nebulous issue area that can never be substantively solved. By then explaining why the issue area maintains such a grip on our thinking, and by remembering that interest in environmental migration is informed by a broader set of concerns, we can then dissolve it as a subject of social scientific research. By resolving the question in this way, we are directed to an alternative social scientific approach, namely to critique equivocal forms of justification, not just in research, but across the liberal democratic context more generally. I've here taken the case of the environmental migration nexus as a narrow and manageable case study for demonstrating how this could be done. In the 1940s, Karl Popper talked of the threats to the open society being, being from without, alternative totalitarian forms of government that attempted to make utopias manifest. This was a very 20th century concern. It strikes me, though, that the main threat in the 21st century to the integrity of the liberal democratic project comes not from alternatives, per se, but from a fundamental lack of accountability within liberal democracy. Equivocal forms of justification are at the root of this problem, and they are increasingly ubiquitous and deserve more systematic scrutiny. So this is my argument for what social scientists can do. We need to approach equivocal topics like environmental migration with caution. We need to maintain a critical distance, a keen awareness of context, both in terms of the issues, genesis, and relevance. We need, in short, what could be termed, thanks to Alex for giving me this idea, an anthropology of our epistemological assumptions. Isaiah Berlin has ever perhaps put it best. In his great essay, The Pursuit of the Ideal, he said, we cannot confine ourselves, our attention, we cannot confine our attention to the great and impersonal forces natural and man-made, which act upon us. The goals and motives that guide human action must be looked at in the light of all that we know and understand. Their roots and growth, their essence, and above all, their validity must be critically examined with every intellectual resource that we have. So I finish by saying we owe it to ourselves to do this due diligence, or we risk not only becoming mired in thematic quicksand, but also fail to see and engage with the much more impactful role we could as social scientists be playing. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this download, you might like to listen to other podcasts of Forced Migration online. www.forcemigration.org slash podcasts.